Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. We often talk about paranormal parasites on this show. And if you don't know what those are, just keep listening. But how many different kinds of these parasites are there? What are paranormal archetypes? Who or what was the mad gasser of Mattoon? Greetings and welcome to the 594th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I am Ben, and those motley questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. And this evening, uh, uh, we are we were scheduled to have a guest, but he had to reschedule. So we bring you an impromptu open line show uh, to answer uh, listeners' questions and all that good stuff. And we welcome your calls this evening as well. The numbers are 800 449 That's from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada. Or 401-766-1240 locally. Also, we will monitor emails. Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com for emails. Right. So let's go. All right. Here's a very interesting question, I think, from Tracy. And Tracy does not say where she's from. Uh, ben usually reads these, but he has to. Uh, <coughs> he also works here at the station. He's got some things to do. Anyway, what happens to a ghost if the dwelling that it resides in is demolished? All right, that's an interesting question. But we have to go back to some of our terms. Uh, those of you who listen to the show regularly know that we don't really think the old explanations of even what ghosts are, what hauntings are, and this sort of thing are really good enough to explain uh, what we've seen over many years. Now, here is uh, the further uh, extrapolation upon the question by Tracy. We lived in a trailer for 18 years that was haunted by a female entity. I and some others had seen her as a solid spirit. Okay, this goes on, but I'm going to stop there. Solid spirit, that's kind of interesting. So this takes us back to the original question of what a ghost really is. The common explanation is that a ghost is the spirit or residue of someone who has died. Okay, that's a very, on the face of it anyway, a very logical explanation. When you happen to see someone or something that is transparent or is uh, sort of walking through your living room or floating through your living room or, or whatever, and you think, well, what else could it be? but the spirit of someone who died in this house or something like that. Or you might even know who it is. Oh, hey, it's Grandma who died three weeks ago, and there, there, there's her ghost. Okay, that kind of thing. <clears throat> A lot of people don't hang around long enough to find out. But I, I think all that is, is not good enough, and, and some of it is downright wrong. Okay. That w and I really started wondering that like 45 years ago during my first case. And, of course, the question arose, well, all right, suppose you do have a residue of, or the soul or spirit, uh, non-corporeal, you know, non-physical remnant of somebody who has died. Well, the body is kind of an important part, especially the brain of any being, okay? How can you have a full human being with all its memories, imagination, thought, and awareness without a body. That didn't make sense to me, and it still doesn't. <clears throat> In other words, how can you have uh, grandma, if that's what it is, coming through and still knowing who you are, uh, walking through the house or whatever, and, and still have it be a full person? <clears throat> I don't think that's possible. And it comes from a very um, old and 
kind of strange sort of philosophy, way of thinking, uh, from some of the ancient Greeks, that you can have a, a separate, two separate worlds of matter and spirit. And even to this day, when you talk about the paranormal, people usually will talk about, you have the world that we see around us, and you have a spirit world that is kind of maybe next to it, or maybe somewhere else. And um, nobody is really too philosophically sure, or certainly not scientifically sure, about how that would be organized or this kind of thing. And again, it doesn't do it, as far as I'm concerned. So early on, we, I began to, and then later on, Ben joined me in the work here, and, and it, it seems very clear that we're dealing not with dead people, but with people living in parallel realities. Now that sounds even crazier than, than the spirits of dead people, but if you look at the fringe areas of the science of physics, which really tries to define how our world is created, organized, and functions in, any, uh, in, in its basic forms of, uh, you know, in its basic operations and realities, you have uh, quantum mechanics now, which among many other things is starting to talk about, as it has been talking about really for the better part of a century, parallel realities. Uh, Einstein, Albert Einstein, in his special theory of relativity, talks about, well, in, in his general theory of relativity, talks about <clears throat> the idea that time really does not exist as we understand it in any objective form. In other words, time is a function more of our minds or our consciousness, even as a group, than it is in any kind of real objective way. Uh, really, it seems now that scientifically, time uh, is simultaneous. In other words, you, uh, what we experience in our minds as the past or the future is really one single simultaneous experience, simultaneous reality. So that, that people talk about sometimes in, uh, around the uh, areas of the paranormal to talk about reincarnation. You know, people, you, you die, th this remnant uh, ends up going into being reborn in another body, and it's still you, but you have different experiences. And all, and all, that, all that, I suppose, y you could interpret some of the evidence uh, to, to verify. However, I don't think that's good enough either. I think what you're experiencing when you have other people's memories and things of that kind are parallel lives you're living in these alternative timelines, which are not separate from one another but interact. Hence, ghosts, in our experience anyway. So when you see Grandma running down the hallway uh, two weeks after her funeral, it's not her spirit or some remnant or her soul. It is her in a parallel world where she never died which may be very, very similar to yours. The only difference between the world where she's living and the world where you're living is that uh, there might have been a traffic accident on the other side of your country a, a, a minute before, and it didn't take place in the one in which you're experiencing. Now, that's a, a bit of an oversimplification, but there, there are very, very similar worlds, many, many, many of them. And this raises the issue of uh, what does this mean for death at all? If, you're, if you or others are existing in so many parallel realities... How can you die in any real sense? Because these worlds are not, as we say, separate from one another. They seem to be interacting all the time. Some of them pass through one another. They interact, they intersect. And uh, as we've talked about in other shows, it seems that the government or somebody knows about this and is very interested in researching it. And we've run into that sometimes in unpleasant ways in some of our work. But in any case, I think this is what we're really looking at. So, a long, uh, long answer to the beginning of Tracy's question, uh, what happens if a ghost 
uh, is in a building that is demolished. Okay, so l let's get beyond the assumption that this ghost, in light of what we've said a ghost may be, uh, is living in a particular house. So if you demolish a house in a, that where this quote-unquote ghost is living, it probably has no effect whatever if this quote-unquote ghost is living in a parallel world because the house probably wasn't demolished in the parallel world. Or they collapsed a wave function. Or they collapsed a wave function, and the two worlds joined. Okay, that's more physics. Right. Yes, as, as one listener said, people should get college credit for listening to our show. Right. Oh, yes. Uh, I should get college credit. I don't know if we should flatter ourselves, but Let's I not, think that was a nice because thing to say. It, it, because most of the time, I don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I kind of do. Never admit that to your listeners. <laughs> anyway, so uh, it, it, the, the question may have no meaning, Tracy. It, it may not have any meaning to say, well, if you demolish the house, because the ghost may not be living in that particular house in that sense. Okay, The person living in a parallel world. And uh, if the house was demolished in that world, uh, the person wouldn't be there anymore. They would have moved somewhere else in that world. All right, so, so let's leave it at that. So Tracy lived in a trailer for 18 years that was haunted by a female entity. Okay. Uh, I and some others, this is Tracy writing, I and some others had seen her as a solid spirit. Well, solid spirit is interesting because th th that's kind of a contradiction in terms. The whole point of a spirit in the classical sense is it is, it is not physical. Although I've had all kinds of physical encounters with these things, so I don't think they're physical anyway. So what Tracy was probably seeing was the actual person. And in many of these worlds, this is a caveat to what I've said, in many of these worlds, these entities are, are these people, I should say, are very aware of us. I've dealt with some who live in particular time streams that aren't that different from ours, particular worlds that aren't that different from ours, but that they are more aware of their neighbors in this multiverse, in these parallel worlds. And it's a perfectly normal thing. Here, if you start talking to the, the guy next door, uh, only next door in another world rather than another house, you might end up on, on some sort of antipsychotic drug, but uh, in some worlds that does not seem to be the case. Anyway, she, th this is uh, Tracy continuing her note, uh, she, this entity, was a great help to me with our son who had uh, Deschain's muscular dystrophy. He, that's a terrible disease. He was on life support, and sometimes I wouldn't hear his alarm go off on his respirator when I would be asleep. She would shake the bed or chair that I would fall asleep in until I woke up. Okay, that's interesting. I would like to know, Tracy, if you saw anyone actually shaking the bed or the chair. Because the, th this gets into another area that's quite interesting. The shaking bed or shaking chair is something that... that I personally experience practically on a nightly basis. I think that it has a lot more to do with other factors than it does with a particular entity shaking the bed. Now, it's very possible that this, ent that this person was helping perhaps an ancestor, uh, of course, living in a parallel world, the same, just sharing the same, same space as you, uh, or, or a, a, a descendant, because the future comes in here too. Time, past and future don't mean a thing in this particular point of view. So I'd like to know if you actually saw anyone shaking the bed or the chair. It could have been part of your subconscious interacting with some energies in the area to protect your, the, the child. And uh, Tracy continues, We have since moved into the house that is next door to the trailer and have started tearing the trailer down. She, the entity or ghost or person, has not followed us to the house, so I am guessing that she is attached to the trailer or something that was in it that we didn't bring with us. Well, again, I, I don't know about that. Um, I think that you're dealing with someone who's living entirely in her own world. 
there may be no awareness of any trailer uh, in, in the sense you refer to it, and I think this, this probably may be something that's just an awareness uh, of helping you, and maybe since you left that particular structure, that trailer, it may have uh, caused a disconnect in the parallel world intersect that was going on. I mean, I, I don't really know without having gone there, but that, that's uh, probably likely as far as I'm concerned. And uh, Tracy goes on, I am worried about her and wanted to know what would become of her after the trailer is gone. Well, from all we've said, Tracy, I wouldn't worry about it. She'll be fine. Would she become a wandering spirit now? Or would she maybe pass through her door to the other side? Well, I mean, door, other side. I mean, there, are no, there is no other side. She's already on one of billions and billions and billions of other sides, in my opinion. Uh, so I wouldn't worry about that either. Ben, any thoughts? Um, well, I, I think she has the, the general idea of what we're going for. I mean, you know, people use their own terms and stuff to describe, like, the indescribable. And English is a terrible language. Really, no language is really capable of describing the the indescribable. So I think she's she's done an okay job trying to explain it to herself. Well, like, well, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I I think Tracy should rest easily about this. Yes. But again, you know, we have terms that come from very very inadequate understandings of what these things mean. Yeah. In my mm-hmm. opinion, the whole thing on the other side. I think it, this is a reflection of what we said before. You get the material world. And the spirit world, and the spirit world is the the other side of the material world, or or uh, behind some veil or barrier. And again, this is the best we can do in our understanding and descriptions with the very very inadequate paradigm that we have as far as knowing and understanding our world yeah. from our modern perspective. No, I, I can. I and can that's not that. good enough. So. What, what, what we try to do is maybe, and hopefully we're right, is expand people's understandings and their minds, and that's why we write books. To the best of our experience and knowledge, this is... Yes, we what, could be what, wrong, yeah. but I doubt it, <laughs> at least. And, and we, we could be not good enough either, but I don't, I don't think that's, that's necessarily, I don't know, the case. Anyhow, so, all right, let's... Uh, oh, yeah, we have poor... Lane, I, not Lane, uh, poor Paula from Colorado, who is uh, describes herself as one of our, our Colorado groupies. She's always writing in and sending very good questions, but we don't always have a chance to get to the questions. So let's uh, begin to take some of her questions that have been waiting for months now. Um, okay, here, Ben, if you have a moment, if you want I to read shall. I will, the, uh, first, the first one there. A fine alliteration that you did as well. Uh, hi, Paul. Uh, I, I look forward... Uh, to uh, when you when you describe uh, the nine different parasitic entities you have come in contact with, is one of these suckers the reptilians by any chance? If so, I would appreciate anything and everything you can say about them. Okay, so let, let's stop it at that. All right, a lot of people write in about this. They're very interested in the parasites we mentioned at the beginning of of the show and our questions. And we so what do we mean by paranormal parasites? Well. Uh, human folklore refers to them as evil spirits or demons, and there's, a, there's an entire branch, really, of theology built around them. Okay? But again, this is the same problem as we had with ghosts. It's the best we can do with our limited understanding. But I think it goes way beyond that. Uh, almost from day one, I, I was dealing with entities that seemed to be non-human, hungry, hostile, and in many ways did fit the traditional description 
of what a of what a demon or evil spirit would be. And by the end of the 1970s, I was convinced that these were not spirits, not incorporeal entities. They were life forms that were part of nature that seemed to reach at times between these parallel worlds we've been talking about. And why would they do that? In order to do what the rest of us do, in order to eat. That's it. They seem to feed upon the energy we produce and, and other species produce when things are negative, when we are in, in uh, positions of, of uh, annoyance, anger, hatred, uh, that sort of stuff. And I, really, it really started to come home to me in 1974 when I was involved in the Bridgeport poltergeist case with Ed and Lorraine Warren. And that case is, is very well documented in William J. Hall's book, The World's Most Haunted House, which was published last year uh, by New Page Books. So it's in stores, and check that out. It's really, really a, a very good treatment of this really hair-raising case. I was 21 years old, and uh, of the many things that happened in this house, I was standing there trying to protect a little 10-year-old girl when this thing came up to me and... Uh, I pushed against it just instinctively. It pushed back because it was perfectly physical, although I couldn't see it entirely. It got around, uh, attacked the child, and, and it was a mess. So th this is the kind of thing we're talking about, parasites. So in order to, uh, to get into Paula's question here, um, there seem to be, in my experience anyway, nine different species. Uh, ben and I do tend to run into them, and uh, I rank them by their apparent intelligence, experience, power, and vulnerability. Uh, it is possible that some of them could be younger or older individuals of the same species, depending on the case, uh, with their maturity making a difference in my interpretation. So maybe they aren't different species, maybe they're just more mature individuals of the same species, but I don't know. Uh, but to me, each group does seem to be unique unto itself. And I have every reason to believe that parasites do not all come from the same alternate world, parallel world, such as we've been talking about. Uh, though they do seem to interact with each other, sometimes in a hostile manner. Sometimes they seem to fight with one another. Now, I considered naming them by class or something, but that seemed too much like Ghostbusters, uh, so I decided to stick to their prime characteristics. So here's the list uh, from the upper, upper echelon down to the riffraff. Okay? The most impressive parasite group that we run into, uh, I call the wise the wise. Now, I realize that that term wise is used with great relativity, and it means nothing good when it comes to us. These top-shelf parasites come across uh, as very ancient and full of knowledge about the multiverse. Uh, they know about the inhabitants of our world, and uh, they know all about their prey in advance. They give the impression of knowing our species far better than we do. They are conversant in most, if not all, human languages, and have a great kind of what you might call a telepathic power. They tend to live and hunt alone. I'm thinking of a case in our own listening area in 1998, uh, or, or just before that, uh, in uh, Burrowville, Rhode Island, actually more specifically the, the village of Pasco, Rhode Island, which does seem to be sort of a, a hot area paranormally. And there was a very wise, uh, in, in, a <laughs> in, in, a, in a fundamental sense, not in a good sense, entity there that was preying upon one of the residents of the house uh, who had been unemployed, uh, was in there and uh, really did not 
leave very often and it was was just taking the energy out of this person and as a long story we've talked about in other cases that that, that is talked about in my book Faces at the Window uh, published in 1998 um, anyway uh, like huge invisible spiders these things uh, they will often quietly park themselves in a place or time where they have access to a certain house or tract of land and this, this can be for centuries at a time uh, to us anyway picking up what knowledge they can and feeding on uh, whomever comes along I found them to be arrogant brilliant and extremely calculating at the same time once they know that you know what they really are I found them surprisingly willing to communicate in a smug but semi-honest manner and I should qualify that by saying that it is not a good, a good idea to communicate with any of these things. Uh, uh, maybe I've been doing this for so long, I'm either fooling myself into the idea that I can communicate in a safe way, uh, or I can actually do that. I don't know. I'm very, very careful, even after all these years. Uh, after the wise, there are the elders, as I call them, the elders. Like the wise, the elders seem to have great knowledge and experience, but they are more apt to work together and to be leaders among other species of parasites. That sounds really wild here, but th this is what we say. Uh, they don't seem as interested in humans and human life as the wise, except, of course, as food sources. They don't seem to study us as much. Uh, then there are the farmers, as I call them, number three. These parasites seem to work quietly in groups of four to eight, at least that's what we found, and will attach themselves to a human family, tribe, or community for long periods. And I, when I say tribe, I mean, I'm, we're talking way, way back in human history. Uh, when you look at, at the fact that you've got, it seems that, that, that our most remote ancestors seem to be monotheistic. They seem to worship one God, or at least a, a, a trinity of uh, father, mother, and child God, of which very often culturally the human race was the child. Uh, and then all of a sudden, when the Sumerians came along, everything went, went, went to pot, and all of a sudden you had 5,000 or 6,000 gods, demigods, demons. And I wonder if, if that happened because parasites were messing with human culture in order to, to eat. Anyway, they seem to be feeding off the results of all this. Certain individuals among the farmers in that parasite group might concentrate on or be in charge of particular individuals in the human group. In other words, they, they might uh, concentrate on certain ones. In other words, you know, I, know, I know some farmers, you know, particularly in England, who go out and you know, milk the cow at 4 o'clock in the morning. You know, a certain person in, in the, on the staff or a certain son or daughter of the farmer might go out and have a particular cow assigned to it. I don't think it's all that different with some of these farmer parasites. In many cases, the parasites are so unobtrusive so hard to notice that except for feelings of presences or negativity sometimes, the humans have no idea they are being farmed. All right. Then there are the pack hunters, as I call them. This species is highly aggressive, highly provocative, and will usually concentrate on one human individual at a time. Unlike most parasites, they seem highly mobile. They can and will follow a person from place to place. There is always a leader. If they get enough to eat, they can become poltergeists. I've encountered them from time to time in cases of what is traditionally known as demonic possession. They are also excellent mimics, the pack hunters, and many victims become convinced that they are being paid attention to, not by parasites, but by benevolent and protective spirits. And I often wonder, 
if uh, when you look through the paranormal literature, you run into the, the uh, elders who are giving people advice or the enlightened masters or some kind of aliens. And I wonder, my goodness, are these perhaps pack hunter parasites playing us for fools? All right. So uh, actually, we will take our break a minute early if we could, and we'll move on. <coughs> and uh, you are listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. And we're, we're answering questions from listeners tonight, and we're halfway through our list of parasitical entities. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with the rest of the list. Hi, everyone. This is your Mater D in the Tiki Bar, Joe Callahan, inviting you into the Tiki Bar every Tuesday night from 6 until 7 p.m. It's nothing but the best in Jimmy Buffett music for the full hour, 6 to 7, Tuesday nights, right here on ON Radio. The Tiki Bar is brought to you by Papa John's Pizza, 1049 Pass Avenue on the corner of Menden Road here in Woonsocket. Remember, better ingredients, better pizza, Papa John's. It's the Tiki Bar right here on ON 1240 WON Socket Radio every Tuesday night from 6 to 7. Okay, we're going to talk about our charities later on in the show, but because I, I wanted to continue our list here uh, that Paula from Colorado has been asking about for a very long time. So after the pack hunters, kinds of paranormal parasites have been talking about, there are what, what we call the rogues. The rogues. Uh, these loners have many of the tendencies of pack hunters, but they operate in complete isolation from one another. They operate freely through Ouija boards and seances, which are practices we vehemently discourage, and they're very often responsible, responsible for poltergeist or possession cases. So here's our second group of parasites, the pack hunters and the rogues, uh, who may be responsible for what are, 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 what are called poltergeist cases or possession cases. Now, what a poltergeist is, is as I described back uh, in uh, the case in 74, 1974 in Bridgeport, uh, they are generally thought of by scientists who look at this as some sort of energy produced by a particular person, uh, particularly a child going through great trauma or, or this sort of thing. Yeah, but again, I don't believe that's good enough. I mean, I've seen these things close up, and I think the people who come up with the theories have not seen them close up. These, to me, are parasitical entities that are, are, are attracted by the dinner bell of negative energy being produced in a family and also having... The right kind of geotechnic, in other words, uh, earth energies, if you will, on the site uh, to have all the ducks lined up so that they can manifest. Plenty of families and people have problems and issues, but not all, fortunately, have poltergeist phenomena going on in their homes. But I think uh, so the ducks, as it were, are not lined up for that to occur. But in cases such as the Bridgeport case, uh, that, that was unfortunately very true that things were in line for that. And I think what we may have encountered were pack hunters because there were four working at a time and there were four uh, on that evening when the girl was attacked when I was there. Okay, so uh, the rogues also loners and they may be responsible for some of those phenomena. Uh, next are what I, what I call the passives. The passives. This is an interesting group uh, that seems to be satisfied filling the role of second stringers when it comes to feeding off our energy. Uh, usually, their second string is to the elders, a group we described earlier, uh, but sometimes to other brighter parasites. In paranormal cases, we often find the passives in subservient positions dominated, sometimes cruelly, by superior species. Uh, ben, we ran, I ran into this in the, uh, the Burrillville, Rhode Island case of 1998, yes. which we still monitor. Yes, of uh, course. Out there, yeah, out there in... Uh, uh, 
that vicinity, and we uh, are still in touch with the owners of the house. And um, as a matter of fact, the, the, there would seem to be two parasites. One, one of the uh, elder species, I think it might have been, uh, one, not quite the wise, probably um, uh, one of the um, lesser ones, but but still kind of high up. Maybe maybe one of the elders. Yeah. And no, I, I can see that. Then the second, the second kind was probably one of the passers because there seemed to be heat. Uh, as a matter of fact, your mother, who does not really work with us because she doesn't like this stuff, well, that was the only case in 34 years of marriage that she came with me on, <laughs> and she kind of picked up the same kind of thing. All right, so the passers, you know, watch out for them as well. Uh, the in parano- yeah, well again we they seem to feed on the passives. They seem to feed on, in a manner of speaking, whatever crumbs are left after the elders. Uh, are finished. Uh, then there are what I, c- I call the lost parasites. There is a certain fascinating tendency among all parasites to forget their own origins and even their own identities the longer they spend attached to their victims or in worlds that are not their own. You know, this seems to be present in human folklore. Ben, I often look back, was, wasn't there a film about Peter Pan, a hook? Yeah, and the yeah, children yeah. go to Neverland, and, and and the the sister warns the little brother that, you know, be careful. You know, Neverland makes you forget. Don't ever forget mommy and daddy. I remember that line. Yeah, because it reminded me of this. Some of these seem seem to forget what wh- what their own origins are. The longer that's it's absolutely fascinating, and that uh, that becomes evident as we approach the lower echelons among the par- parasite species, and it includes the ones I call the lost. Uh, the lost seem to operate as individuals, concentrating on one person, even when there is little or no sustenance from that person. They often communicate verbally with the person, and I've had them communicate with me, and they will often give the impression that they need sympathy, or even that they are sorry for the way they have to live. In one case, in the American Midwest a few years ago, one of the lost was constantly apologizing to its human victim, its human host. And the host could hear a human-like voice but never saw the parasite. Very interesting. Then there are the tricksters. These are well-known in, in human folklore and parallel, uh, and I should say uh, paranormal folklore as well. If any species in the multiverse can be intellectual lightweights but clever at the same time, it must be these trickster parasites. Uh, these will get the energy flowing from their victims through startling pranks and unpleasant surprises. As with all parasites, their abilities to travel among parallel worlds will make it seem that they can manipulate space and time. You can very often be fooled by that. Uh, something that and that's something that, that this apparent manipulation of space and time is something that uh, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, the great writer of, of paranormal uh, fiction from uh, Rhode Island and, and a distant cousin of ours, actually pointed out uh, that it strikes terror into the human heart kind of like getting up in the morning and finding the sun rising in the west instead of the east. We don't like that kind of uncertainty. Uh, tricksters are often the origins of the, I think, the enlightened masters and all these things we described before, space brothers or false spirit guides that have a field day among gullible psychics and mediums. Now, I'm not saying that every, t- every time something you know, falls off your table it's being caused by a trickster, but I think that they are present in, in human life at times in order to feed, and they are well-known in human folklore. And finally, the lowest echelon uh, that uh, that, uh, we call the brats. Uh, The lowest echelon here among parasites uh, seems to be these. They act like spoiled and sometimes sometimes frightened children. Uh, They seem to live and feed alone on a specific human who is also alone. 
Often an unhealthy bond will result. Now, brats are not very swift uh, in the head or whatever equivalent they have for a head. They are very good at manipulating their victims, and they are terrified of being separated from their victims because they uh, very often can't remember where they came from or where they should go, as we said. Can't remember their own origins. Dealt with one of these, and uh, I don't know, I'm a bit concerned. I'm out of touch now with the person. This was a well-known artist in New York City uh, who had one of these things bothering um, he, or he or she for over 25 years coming up on 30 years now if it's still there uh, and I was working with her uh, or him and the uh, th- this was one of these things it was terrified of being separated from this person because it didn't know what to do or where to go and it, it was a very two dimensional thinker it acted like a child but the, there, there was, and it was almost a codependent love hate relationship between the two of them very very strange very interesting now, I'm a bit concerned that all of a sudden there's no contact here, so uh, that's kind of something I'm taking a looking at. So those are the parasites, Paula, and uh, lengthy descriptions, but I hope that that does answer your question. There's still uh, more to the question, by the okay, way. Okay, well, all right. L- let's, uh, <laughs> that was only the first part. We that have was only the first part. Okay. Yes, uh, so she goes on to ask, uh, now I do have a couple more questions that I hope you'll have time to answer. So perfect timing. We can try. Uh, can you can you feel when you are in an area like Skinwalker Ranch or the Skinwalker uh, like the Skinwalker Ranch of Connecticut? Uh, the the two or however many dimensions uh, when you are there. If so, can you explain what it feels like? Why don't you answer that? That's one of your cases. Feeling is the wrong word. Everyone likes to focus on the sensual feeling, and ooh, I get tingles here or there or whatever, that is a falsity as well as a trick. Your mind and your body are two things that you just should not trust because the mind can play tricks on you as well as the body. If you have sensual feeling and lie entirely upon the senses, then you're deceiving yourself in that way. Or if you rely entirely on your intellect, then you're also deceiving yourself in that way. What I have is not a feeling or a sensation, it just is. It's like, it, it's very hard to describe because it is not a feeling. And I can't say, well, it feels like you're eating a watermelon because that's because that, that would just do it injustice. It is something that is a part of one's being. Well, uh, I think this is why Ben and I are a good team because we approach this in different ways. Uh, I, I th- that, that's, that's entirely correct and respectable. And this is one of his first cases. Funny, there's a picture on Facebook of Ben starting to work on this case in 05 when he was 13 years old. And um, couldn't people, hold the camera straight. People often comment. I know, but uh, well, that's another story. But it, people often comment uh, that he's so cute, and that uh, it was really interesting. So uh, yeah, that's this it. Is the, that's that's all I get. I'm the cute one. Yes, as opposed to your your elderly father. <laughs> So, but I do point out that we we ha- we had a panel, and we will have another panel soon, uh, including author William J. Hall, whose next book, he wrote the Bridgeport one about the uh, world's most haunted house, and he's becoming sort of our chronicler, I guess, in a way. Uh, this next book is going to be the Haunted House Diaries, which is based on this case. And I told him, he said it's still developing because it's involving a whole area, you know. Five ten square miles around this house, where strange things are happening, and they say you better be prepared to write a couple more books about this. So we'll have them on, and you can hear about the book. It's going to be out in August next month. So I, on the other hand, do 
respect what Ben says, but I, I do have physical characteristics, uh, physical I'm not reactions. saying they don't exist, I just don't trust them. Okay, oh no, alright, okay, I buy that. But I remember when you and I walked into a corner of, of that farmhouse, the first time we were there in 05, uh, I, we, you both, we felt faint in one particular room, and that was the room where later on a, a gray, a quote-unquote alien, uh, was reported, and where other things have occurred. Uh, th- there are physical feelings that, that I do have, and, and they do kind of mean something to me. One of the few times I use one of these uh, electromagnetic field meters, or EMF meters, that all the ghost hunters are always touting, and they don't understand what they do, is when the, uh, the digital... Uh, milligauss reading goes into the negative range what what the, what this instrument does is register the electromagnetic field around an electrical current and it's primarily an engineer's or an electrician's tool uh, one of the things it does is to see if the insulation on your electrical system is good enough to keep uh, you from having health problems and one of the things when it goes into the negative range that is very odd and it means that the polarity on the electrical field is reversed Okay, now that can happen under deliberate circumstances, things can be arranged. But when, when you're out in the middle of nowhere and there's no source and you have a very powerful reading that goes into the negative range, uh, that can indicate that there, there is an energy exchange, in my opinion, between parallel worlds, which is what we're talking about here. So that has happened in that house a number of times and uh, could have been some other explanation, but that's the only... But so I, there are physical reactions uh, to these things. So, uh, but I don't know if that really answers Paula's question. It uh, does not, because there is no way to describe it. Perhaps you're right. Okay, so that per- perhaps that's the best we can do, Paula. Okay. So I think the question was not the right question to ask. Perhaps not. Yeah, and you can't get the right answer if you ask the wrong question. Exactly. So, But wait, uh, there's more. There's more. Uh, have the owners ever turned on a recorder on their nightstand uh, when they go to bed so they can listen to what goes on in the house and in some cases... Uh, to one or both of the owners while they were sleeping. Yes, all the time. Not just recorders, but also video cameras. And there are zillions of orbs that are very often recorded. Sometimes there are shadow, I, I suppose I want to call them shadow people, as uh, they're often described. And a lot of things that, that, that have been picked up that were not really evident to the uh, naked eye or naked ear. Plenty of things are evident to the naked eye or naked ear. I could... Uh, take three or four shows and read you emails from the homeowners talking about things that they experienced there. Our very dear friend Shane Searway, who was on these panels when we discussed this case and will be again next month, uh, has to do uh, later this month, uh, will tell you that, that he has set up cameras there and has picked up a lot of strange things. So the, the long answer to that question, Paula, is yes, there have been all sorts of things that have, uh, have occurred there uh, that have been re- well recorded. And again, it's your interpretation. One of the things we uh, thought was funny, when we first went there, Ben was 13, it was the first time we had brought a video camera on a case. And uh, we were a little late catching up with some of the technology. We were sort of it. figuring it out how it worked on the way over. Yeah, we were reading the instructions on the way <laughs> over. We didn't read instructions. We just figured it well, out. Well, guys don't read instructions. So it was, uh, it's a two-hour drive, or at least, or, or more, from uh, our home in Rhode Island to this, this area in western Connecticut. So uh, we read the instructions there. So uh, it was kind of like, uh, I guess we were doing sort of the Blair Witch thing uh, with, the, with the bouncy camera, bouncy cinematography. And we, we came upon a... Um, very interesting f- bunch of frames in which we were in the basement, and it looked as though a, a tall figure 
very similar to one species we know about in the multiverse, was similar walking across this particular space. And Ben and I are high-fiving each other. Oh, we got one of them and all this. Well, uh, we always uh, double-check these things. And we asked the homeowner to take a picture of that particular spot with a still camera. And sure enough, it appeared that what we had was a large oil tank with a thing on the wall that kind of looked like a head. And uh, we bounced by it so quickly that it looked like it was moving, and, and so it turned out to be uh, nothing. But that's the kind of quality control you do need. But a fascinating case, and we have discussed it, and we'll discuss it, discuss it uh, in future shows, and we'll let you know when that panel will be in a couple of weeks. Okay, now here is... Uh, I just I feel so bad for, for Paula that we haven't been able to answer her question. So here is another one uh, that is kind of interesting. How about probably the second one down here at this point would be good. And uh, Paula again from Colorado asking a question. Uh, the circled ones. Yeah. Okay. Um, da, 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 Take the second one. I think we probably got time for that. Okay. What is a hologram? All right. Hologram, very interesting. On, on the face of it, a hologram is something. You, can you, did you study that at school? Holograms to describe it, perhaps better than I could. No. Okay. No, right. well, weirdly enough, I've ne- I, I, well, I was in the sound program, not the video. Okay. Program, well, essentially, so. it, you can project a three-dimensional um, scene or object in something, and it's not really there in any physical sense, but you, you, know, you can put your hand through well, it's it. Like from, from what I understand, it's an optical illusion to, it's essentially an optical to make illusion. it seem like it's 3D. It's, it's, like, uh, it's like watching a movie or something with yeah, an image, yeah. an image uh, put on a, a 2D image put on a screen, but yet we perceive it as 3D. Yes, uh, but it is a projection, okay? Yes. Now, of course, this raises the question, well, what do you mean by real? I mean, I, I have a, a cup of iced tea next to me here, I mean, is that real? Uh, there could be a projection from a holographic projector, and it's going to look just as real as it does here. So th- there's an issue of, of what is real and what isn't, but we'll, we'll, we'll let that pass. But when we're talking about the hologram, this is another way of kind of looking at the multiverse. There is, in quantum physics, uh, a phenomenon that some people, uh, some physicists believe in called the quantum hologram, that everything we see around us, uh, our whole world, ourselves, and any parallel worlds that are around are projections from some cosmic mind onto the screen of the universe or the multiverse. And that, that there seems to be some indication that, that that may be the case, believe it or not. I'm not saying that there's no reality. You can go out and do whatever you want, but that, that's not the case. We have to live in the world in which we have to live. But uh, the origin of this world may be uh, from uh, a cosmic mind. So, uh, some people will say, well, this is the equivalent of God, uh, whoever or whatever is projecting this. It's not the God you're going to hear about in church, probably, but some, uh, uh, some mind that maybe contains uh, the unity of all our minds or all living things or whatever. However you want to describe it, that's what the hologram, uh, the, one explanation for the hologram. Another explanation <clears throat> that uh, many people believe, uh, not, I've never heard a physicist describe this, but it, they, they could be a, a projection being caused by some alien race somehow. It could be a projection being caused by a parasitical race that has maintained our species as a food source. Pretty chilling, in my opinion, from what we've talked about this evening, but another possibility. But physicists do not talk seriously about that possibility. So it's generally um, 
kind of left to the imagination, whatever the source of this hologram may be, but it is one way of describing reality. Uh, I, I tend to think it's a little more uh, clear-cut in the, the multiversal sense, but again, these are just different ways of describing the same thing. So that's what the hologram is in the sense that we discuss it. But that, that was the whole content of that question, Matt? Well, yes. Uh, you said that was the, that was the the second one, so that's the really the only one that uh, I right. had time for, according to you. Unless you want well, to no, get into something else. Uh, okay. Well, um, duh, 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 duh. Uh, can one tell where? Oh, oh, oh no. Maybe we. Okay. In all fairness to Paula, let's hold the rest of the questions to the other show because we did ask a question in the beginning that's going to make people interested in in what this may be. So we'd better answer it quickly. Uh, this this one is from Tara in Rentham. Massachusetts. Right at the top okay there. Uh, so Tara writes to us, uh, who was the mad gasser of Mattoon, and was this paranormal, or was it some kind of crazy person? <laughs> okay. Could be neither, could be both. I don't know. But here's an article that I, that I got from the September 2nd, 1944 edition of the Daily Journal-Gazette in Mattoon, Illinois. And the headline reads, reads Mrs. Keir- Carney, I guess it's pronounced her Kearney, and daughter, first victims. Both recover... Robber fails to get into home. And the story reads, A prowler who used some kind of anesthetic or gas to knock out the intended victims was on the loose in Mattoon Friday night. Mrs. Bert Kearney, or Kearney said her three-year-old daughter Dorothy Ellen, Ellen, Dorothy Ellen were victims of the anesthetic Friday night as they slept in bed at their home. Uh, although Mrs. Kearney said that her mouth and throat remained parched and her lips burned from effects of whatever was used by the prowler, who was unsuccessful in getting into the house. Now, that doesn't sound very paranormal, but it goes on. Uh, this became known as the Mad Gasser of Mattoon, Illinois, uh, also known as the anesthetic prowler, the phantom anesthetist, <laughs> Mad Gasser of Roanoke, because he, she, or it, or whatever it was, turned up also in, in um, I believe it's pronounced, Baudicourt County, Virginia. All right. Uh, and now there were apparent gas attacks that occurred there in, in the early 1930s and in the mid-1940s in Mattoon, Illinois. So one wonders, now that's an awful separation in time and quite a separation in geography, so what was going on here? Now, some people said, well, the attacks were, were mass hysteria or government experiments or some kind of alien thing. Uh, the individual reports were connected, and the ultimate explanation for the events are all debated at this point. So this was what the mad gasser of Mattoon was, uh, Tara. Now, most contemporary descriptions of this gasser are based on the testimony of this Kearney uh, family in uh, Mattoon, Illinois, which I just described. Uh, they described, they did, they did see the, the person or whatever it was as uh, being a very tall, thin man dressed in dark clothing and wearing a tight-fitting cap. Another report made some weeks later described the gasser as being a, a, a woman uh, and dressed as a man. Right? And of course, this is at night, too, so who knows. And the gasser was also described as carrying um, what was known as a flit gun, which is an agricultural tool for, for spraying pesticides. Uh, you don't see those too much today, but when I was growing up, people were, were blasting DDT all over their gardens and, and hedges, and we all inhaled it, so there you go. Uh, but anyway, that was supposedly what was used to expel the gas. Now, the first incidents were recorded in uh, Baudicourt County, Virginia, in December 1933 and February 1934, all right? And there are a number of cases there 
that uh, people reported smelling an unusual odor and were overcome by a feeling of nausea. And uh, the odor of nausea returned again at about half an hour later. And uh, there were people running around outside their houses and this kind of thing. Now, the strange thing with the Mattoon case is that this is 1944, right toward the end of World War II. And uh, World War II started in 1939 uh, with the German invasion of Poland and uh, Britain and France got involved. But the United States didn't get involved in World War II until uh, December 1941 when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. The Japanese were allied with the Germans during World War II. And uh, by 1944, excuse me, the um, uh, situation in Europe had uh, become quite tense, to say the least. Uh, Germany had conquered most of Europe. The invasion uh, of Europe by the Allies, the Americans, the British, Canadians, etc., uh, took place in June 1944. And things uh, still were not winding down. So just because the war ended in 1945 does not mean that things were, were going extremely well. Uh, we came very, very close to a German victory, a Nazi victory in World War II. And uh, we'd all, even if our ancestors were allowed to survive, uh, those of us who did survive would be speaking German at this point. So there may have been some very hectic and uh, important government experiments going on with all sorts of strange things. And there's some of this is still classified, uh, still a secret you know, that has not been talked about even you know, 70 years after the, the war ended. So <coughs> excuse me, the, uh, this mad gasser, it has been theorized by some, uh, was someone who was uh, trying out strange chemicals or some sort of anesthetic or, or sleep drug or something on people in their homes at night. And I'm not aware of any of these cases where anyone actually broke into the home and stole anything. It just was just this gas. So that seems to be what was the story with the mad gas serpent. We still don't know what's going, what happened. And of course, the question with that, as with any possible government experiment, is well, why wouldn't they just use guinea pigs or volunteers or, or soldiers? as they did in the 50s, you know, for some of these experiments. And uh, why would they sneak around outside homes and risk getting caught, particularly by the police, uh, to, to get these experiments done? So, but no one really knows. Uh, could it have been alien in origin? I suppose anything is possible. Uh, we've seen things you wouldn't believe, to say the least, over the years. And I suppose that's possible, too. But the descriptions, the physical descriptions of the mad gasser, quote-unquote, uh, do not <coughs> match those, really, of... Uh, aliens, uh, quote-unquote, that are commonly identified in, in the cases of UFO landings and third close encounters of the third and fourth kinds and all this sort of business. So that's really, uh, I think, probably an unlikely explanation to what's going on. So it's probably not paranormal, but certainly very interesting. Okay, so there we are. Any comment on that, Ben? Uh, are you familiar with that? Or? No, not at all, actually. That's the first yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah. There are all sorts of fascinating... That's why we never run out of interesting guests for our show, because there are so many fascinating uh, paranormal events of all kinds and all descriptions, some of which you couldn't make up that have, have dominated, really, American culture and history mm. and are very present uh, in our country and, and elsewhere, too. Okay, so I think we'd better get on with our announcements in that case. Uh, yes. Thank we you have for the interesting and very good questions, folks. We have many, many <laughs> announcements, and we're going to start off with uh, on Saturday, September 5th, we're scheduled to speak once again at the Exeter UFO Festival in Exeter, New Hampshire. The uh, town-wide event is organized by the Kiwanis Club to benefit local children's charities, and uh, other speakers include the great Stanton Friedman, as, as well as... Uh, 
uh, Richard Dolan, Kathleen Martin, and Jennifer Stein, and we'll provide more information as the dates approach. I can't tell you how much fun that event is. The whole town gets involved, uh, but I think there is a, a nominal ticket charge this year. It's always been free. Yeah. But we'll, um, we'll, we'll I'll get the, the straight information on that. Okay, do on Thursday, September 24th, we will join Bill Hall, author of the forthcoming The Haunted House Diaries, which we talked about this evening, for a joint book event at Hank's Restaurant in Brooklyn, Connecticut. Hank's has great food, and it will be a lot of fun. Uh, our book, uh, Cosmic Journey, which Ben and I just signed a contract for, uh, we'll, they're talking about publishing it in 2017, so we won't have that, but we have plenty of other books uh, that I, I've written. Uh, Hank's has great food, and again, it will be a lot of fun. Indeed, and on Saturday, October 10th, we'll once again be speakers at the Great New England UFO Conference. Greater New England. Oh, sorry, Greater New England UFO Conference. I mean, it is pretty great, too. So, yeah. uh, That is at the City Hall in uh, Lemonster, Massachusetts, and other speakers will include Stan, once again, Richard Dolan, Peter Robbins, and other UFO greats. Uh, watch for more information on that as dates approach. And uh, visit our websites. That's uh, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can find nearly 600 free podcasts of all of our past shows, including those from both ON1240 and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. And you can find my books on Amazon.com, Kindle, and all the usual suspects. But if you buy them directly at BehindTheParanormal.com, where we have an expanded online bookstore, I'll be happy to sign them for you, and you will help us keep all those podcasts free. Also on our website, you'll find direct links to several charities Ben and I have adopted, including usacares.org, buildershelpingheroes.org, and canadianveteransadvocacy.org. Also, Youth Mentoring Connection, uh, youthmentoring.org, in Los Angeles, doing fantastic things for at-risk youth out there with our good friend Tony LeRae. And there are two new books uh, just released by Global Communications, uh, Timothy Green Beckley's publishing company, uh, famous UFO guy, uh, that would be of great interest to our listeners. One is the Bell Witch Project, which contains that story and also a few contributions by yours truly on historic paranormal cases here in New England, including the 17th century Specter Leaguers of Massachusetts and the 18th and 19th century Vampire Hysteria in Rhode Island and Connecticut that a lot of you might not know about. Of special interest to folks here on the ON 1240 listening area is another Beckley book, UFO Repeaters, which somehow has our picture in it, uh, with an entire chapter on our old friend Joe Ferrier, who was a talk show host here on o- o- ON1240 for over 50 years and a very dear friend who passed away a few years ago. Both books are available on Amazon.com or use the links at the online bookstore at our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com. Okay, and next Monday, July 6th, we'll welcome Aztec shaman Ruben Uritia for a conversation about what it takes to be a shaman. Actually, that's not correct. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he's the one who had to reschedule from tonight. That's right. So who is next week? Um, I'm having a senior moment. What a terrible thing. Oh, I think we have uh, Mary Joyce talking about uh, little people in North Carolina and other North Carolina Little people in North Carolina. Yes, the the, the Cherokees. Kind of like Pukwudgies kind of thing. Oh. Yeah, people don't know what Pukwudgies are either, but that's... Kind of like the... Tune in next week to find out. Kind of like the the mini human beings that sort of lived alongside us back when we were Neanderthals. Well, something like that. Something to that effect. Yeah, Yeah, well, whatever. So anyway, sorry about that, but we will leave you this evening with a thought from one of my favorite philosophers, the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius. Everything we hear is an opinion, not a fact. Everything we see is a perspective, not the truth. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of 
Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.